0: Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true and the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore to the possibly plausible paranormal to horrifying history to tense and terrible true crime and everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Today, we're covering the Velisca Axe murders from 1912. This famous murder you've probably heard of, but didn't actually know a lot of the details to it. I had heard of this case before, but didn't know exactly what happened, just that it purely existed. What about you? I had not heard anything about it until I was searching for like just different cases that maybe we could cover. And then I came across this and I was like, woof, this is a particularly gruesome case. And when I think of the early 1900s, it's certainly not what comes to mind. <laughs> Exactly. So with that, why don't we take everyone back to 1912 when it happened? So 1912 is actually a pretty big year for the US, um, or really the world, I should say. The Titanic sunk in April of 1912. Arizona and New Mexico both became states. Additionally, Nabisco introduced the Oreo. That feels like very big news for me. It's very big news. That's important. Julia Child was born. Stamps for two cents. Mm-hmm. Carl Jung, one of the forefathers of psychology, published Psychology of the Unconscious. Additionally, the American Medical Association also reported their first diagnosis of death by heart attack. Oh. Which I don't know when I thought that that had happened, but I certainly thought that it had happened before then that we had a better understanding of the body. And so like I looked a little more into like what was medicine like then and babies were still being born at home. Yeah. Doctors were still making house calls and in rural areas, sometimes surgeries were still done at home as well. I feel like that fact is the one that just makes me cringe the most. Yeah, because I can't think of a place in my house that is appropriate for surgery. No. That I would be able to use as anything other than that at that point? Do you know what I mean? Like, if I use my dining room table as a place where surgery was done, I don't think I could continue to eat there. Well, you wouldn't have to worry because you'd probably die. (laughs) When you're right, you're right. (laughs) Also, this is of particular interest to me, but Julia Gordon Lowe also founded Girl Scouts in 1912. Oh, okay. They've been around a long time. They've been around a minute. Yeah, I didn't think about that. This horrific incident did occur in 1912, like we said. So in Villisca, Iowa, where the axe burners occurred, there wasn't electricity in all of the homes, but there were electric street lamps. However, on June 9th, the electric street lamps were out. There was a disagreement between the power company and the town, right? Yeah, yeah. It was the night of June 9th to 10th, so it was a little bit after midnight on June 10th, when the Moors and their four children and two of their children's friends were murdered in their beds. So the family was made up of Josiah or J.B. Moore, who was 43, Sarah Montgomery Moore, who was 39, Herman Moore, which was 11, Catherine Moore, uh, I believe she was 10, Boyd Moore, that was 7, Paul Moore that was five and then their two friends so it was Catherine's two friends Lena Stillinger who was 12 and Ina Stillinger who was 8 they believe that the murder weapon was actually an axe that belonged to the Moors because the father's brother Ross Moore had identified the axe as one belonging to them the Moors had been using it to break apart coal so there was a big chip in the blade and this was the murder weapon that was found in the spare room on the first floor with the last two victims Mm -hmm. so a couple things that make this tragedy a little more interesting in today's world is that the murder was never solved yet many try to pick apart it and solve it today so that that blew my mind that there's a lot of people online that are in sleuth groups or detectives or investigators or ghost hunters ghost hunters yeah people at home just looking through all the archives trying to find information to solve it and it seems like it's a common trend that when someone hears of this case and they go unsolved, let me look through it. I bet I could figure it out. And there's a big debate over who did it. So we'll, we'll talk in a little bit about some of the suspects. And then I also want to get your opinion on who you think did it. When I hear cold case, what I imagine is that there's this cache of evidence that all we need to do is test it with today's technology. Mm -hmm. but as you'll understand as we go through that's certainly not the case here and Also, the standard of evidence collection in 1912, completely different. A little different. (laughs) From what we look at today and how crime scenes are treated and handled. So with that being said, without having an exact way of understanding what happened that night, what we'll talk about is how we understand the murders happened and in what order we believe they may have happened. Now, without someone ever being charged with it, we really don't know. This is all just going off of what little evidence they had and the layout of the home. So the, the home itself was a standard design uh, that was used quite a bit in the area from what I understand. It's a two-level home. The first level has a parlor, a kitchen, a pantry, one small bedroom off of the parlor, and then there's a little itty-bitty staircase that goes upstairs. Once you enter upstairs, that would have been the parent's room. And instead of calling it a room though, in today's world, I would probably call it a loft because it is attached to the actual staircase. There's a little closet and then for From that closet, I'm calling it a closet. It's just like this little room that kind of connects everything, but I I wouldn't really call it a hallway. Yeah. From there, it connects to where their kid's room would have been. So their four kids slept in this room. And then also attached to this little closet hallway is the attic. So in today's houses, at least where I am, you don't see anything like that where the attic is so, I don't know, intermingled with a home, right? Yeah. I feel like typically when you think attic, you think it's it's a floor above. Yeah. If you do want to take a tour of the home, they actually allow people to go to it, visit and even stay the night. No, thank you. Right, right. And I'll talk about my thoughts on that later. But <laughs> you you can also take an online tour of the home as well so that you can get this very strange layout. But what I'll go into next is what we believe occurred. So the Moore family and the two Stillinger girls came home around 10 p.m. that night. They were at church prior to that. They had a special little gathering. So they got home a little late, 10 p.m. And from what some of the accounts show is they stayed up and had cookies and milk. I'm thinking to maybe celebrate their little play that they were in, the Children's Day event that they had attended. So all the kids went to bed. Parents went to bed. Lights out. What happened next is estimated between prime midnight to about 2 a.m. on the 10th. And some say the killer was already in the home. Some say they were outside the home. And the killer entered the home. They went up to the Mr. and Mrs. Moore's room first, bludgeoned what we believe Mr. Moore first with the, the back of the axe. Not the sharp part, but the back of it. Then Sarah Moore. <laughs> then they he entered the room of the four sleeping children. So Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul were all in one room together. And he did the same thing to all four children. He then went walked down the stairs and entered the room with the Stillinger girls and then did the same thing to them as well. Afterwards and and this is where it gets a little tricky we're not sure in what order all of this occurred there was a bowl of water in which he used to wash his hands there was a plate of food on the counter and then also all of the bodies were covered up with their sheets or what they say they call bedclothes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They were calling them bedclothes. And at first I was like, pajamas? Yeah. I think when they say bedclothes, they meant sheets. They talk about the fact that they knew that it was after because the cloth did not appear to be part of the strike of the axe. Right. After, I believe, washing his hands, then he covered up all of the bodies with their sheets or bedclothes, like it's stated in everything from 1912. Bedcloths or bedclothes, I'm not sure. And then from there, he took clothing and covered up all of the mirrors. And I believe two windows that did not have window dressings. So no reflection was shown. I don't know why he did it. We can speculate on that. And then after that, he was gone by 5 a.m. As a general note, there's a movie that's based off of this. It's a horror movie about ghosts. And I was trying to find the documentary on this and turned that on instead. And was like, it took me like a good like three minutes of like, I don't think this is the documentary. (laughs) This is the same. But in the horror movie, they have, spoiler alert. You watched the whole thing, didn't you? I love a bad horror movie. It truly is one of my favorite things. But so for whatever reason, I believe the mirrors were covered up when the youths came in. They were then possessed by the spirits of the house, one of which being the killer, which doesn't make sense to me because if it's people who died in the house, the killer didn't die there. So why is his spirit there? They never quite explain that. Also, Zach Baggins didn't explain why the killer's energy was in the house during his Ghost Hunter episode. But I digress. The mirrors are covered up. At one point, a mirror cloth is pulled down at one point, and then the person is, like, taken out of their possession. So the theory they're working through in this movie, very quote-unquote subtly, is that uh, if you can see your reflection, that you'll be snapped out of the possession. Okay, sure. What an interesting creative license they took there. I haven't heard that particular possession-based lore, but an interesting turn. Yeah, I mean, that's one way of looking at it. Of course, bad (laughs) horror movie. (laughs) I read a couple different theories of that, you know, sometimes when a killer doesn't want to admit that they're a terrible human being, and they don't even want to look at themselves. That was one thing that I read. And that was more of like blog thoughts. And yeah, Facebook group thoughts. So it's nothing, no scientists, no psychologists, nothing like that. Uh, And I was like, huh, I mean, uh, Maybe. They're they're so angry with themselves that they don't even want to look at themselves, maybe. I read that, yeah, it could have been a spiritual thing where they think that the ghosts of who they just murdered could possibly be watching them in a mirror. Ooh. And then things like Bloody Mary, you know, came from a mirror. The thoughts of... Of that sort of um, lure. I don't know what you'd call it. So I don't know. It it could have just been that maybe he didn't want to be seen. Maybe he did it before he killed them. And maybe he just didn't want someone to like open their eyes and see someone in the other room since they were so close together upstairs. That would make sense. But then why would he continue it downstairs too? As you talked about the layout of the house, everyone was really close. Yeah. Very very close in proximity. And with a home that's the size that it is that was constructed the way that it was in that time period it's a hard sell for me to think that a person could come into that house and be quiet generally Mm -hmm. by the time they were murdering the parents it hurts my heart to think that the children in the house may have woken up right and there's no and we could talk about the next morning and where they found everyone but there's no evidence that anyone left their beds, which i found surprising because even just the the thought of, you know, hitting someone with the, the back of the axe, that is going to make a sound. Yeah. And so some thoughts and some theories that people speculate is that it may have been multiple people. Because how do you ensure that that many people do not wake up during the murder and don't get away? yeah Well, and also... When you're starting in the upstairs and there's people in the downstairs. Mm-hmm. Well, and the stairs, they're old style sta- stairs. The the staircase was super tiny. It's very creaky. Yeah. And and they even say when they entered the home the following day that the stairs creaked. So as I mean, unless they were all very hard sleepers, which I, I highly doubt with that many children in the home, I don't know how he made it up the stairs or down the stairs without waking someone up. Every account that I've read Says that everybody is asleep, but that doesn't sit well with me because it doesn't make sense how someone could move through the house, commit violent murders like this that are not quiet and nobody wake up. Yeah. The only thing that makes me believe that they were in bed. And again, I, I go back and forth, but the only reason I believe they're all in bed is because the bla- blood splatter. Yes. Yes. According to the people that, that actually analyzed the room the following day was where it should be if they were all in bed. I just don't understand how they were all still in bed. So I don't know if maybe there's something that we don't know that happened like maybe at the children's day thing they were all drugged somehow. Yeah. Who knows? So the documentary that we watched was called Villisca, Living with a Mystery, and it's actually a very good watch. It has everything from what the town went through before the tragedy to during and kind of the aftermath of the tragedy as well. So the next morning, their neighbor, Mary Peckham, goes outside to start her chores around five in the morning, and she notices that no one from next door is up and moving around. But she's like, I'll wait some time because maybe they slept in because she knows that everybody was at this event the day before. So she waits a little while longer and it's 745 and she's like, this is still strange, like no one's moving. And this is back in a time when people were up doing chores, moving around. The fact that there's a very still house is very strange. Also, I believe the Stillinger girls are from a farming family. So they would have been up, right, like up with the dawn. So she goes and knocks on the door. And no one answers. So then she tries to open the door, as a good neighbor does. And then it doesn't open. So then she calls Josiah's brother, Ross Moore, who comes to the house. He gets to the house. He also tries to open the door. When the door doesn't open, he opens it with a key that he has. So he walks into the parlor. And then he goes into the spare bedroom on the first floor. And he sees two bodies with dark liquid. And he steps out and calls the town marshal. So she didn't technically go into the bedroom, from what I understand. She was waiting in the parlor. And the house was super dark because all of the curtains were still drawn. And any window that would have been opened was covered up. So the next morning, the town marshal, Hank Horton, comes. And he goes through each room and finds the bodies of the Moore family as well as the Stillinger girls. Hank Horton, the the marshal, walked through and immediately said, We need we need to grab a doctor, basically to investigate. So he brought doctors J. Clark Cooper and Edgar Hugh. And then he also got the minister of the Moore's Presbyterian congregation, Wesley Ewing, to come into the home. And then additionally, the county coroner and and they did get looks like another doctor which was F.S. Williams, who examined the bodies and then estimated their time of death between midnight and 2 a.m. Now, one thing that they reviewed is basically each each room where everyone was, what looked out of place in each room. So one thing that was noticed was all of the bodies were beaten beyond recognition. Joe Moore, there, there's two different theories where he his head was so crushed That they believe that the first blow could have killed him instantly. However, what was noticed is there was a shoe filled with blood that was tipped over. And what they believe is that the killer had hit him, killed his wife, went into the kids' room. He might have not died right away. Just based off of, I think, the pulling of blood is what they were going off of. And then when he returned into the room, because you have to go through that room to go back down the stairs, he either noticed or heard him and he wasn't dead. So he went on to keep hitting him. And then when he did that, he knocked over the shoe, which poured the blood on the floor. I don't know which one I believe in that sense. Uh, One thing that was noticed, too, is that Sarah Moore, her body had also been hit again after the initial You know, blow that killed her. Later, I don't know if it was at at the same time, but I I would guess he would have killed everyone and then come back. She was the only one hit with the blade side. Yeah, and they did notice too on the on the ceiling there were marks from the axe. Because remember, he's hitting them with the back of the axe, so Hmm. the sharp side of the axe was hitting the ceiling, leaving marks. Which later, uh, I believe it was Linquist identified that hey, based off of the pattern, this person was left-handed. Is what he believed. Now, the four children in the, the room next door, there wasn't much to go off of, from what I understand, other than, yeah, they were yes. all dead in their beds. It doesn't look like anyone woke up when the the murderer entered the room or, you know, it was killing the siblings. It doesn't look like anyone was out of place. When they were going back downstairs, or, I mean, when they probably entered the Moore's, Mr. and Mrs. Moore's room, they saw the lamp. At the foot of Josiah and Sarah's bed, a kerosene lamp was found. The wick had been turned back and the chimney was off. When they looked for the chimney, which was, is a part of the glass piece on top of a kerosene lamp, it was found under the dresser. This isn't going to be the only time that we see or hear about a kerosene lamp being placed in an interesting place and the chimney being off, but I just I kind of wonder if that's purposeful and or what the purpose of taking it apart in that particular way would be. My guess after reading some of the ways that everything could have happened is that the reason why he took that off is to make it a little bit less bright, because that kind of like accentuates, like dulls the flame in a sense, so that he, where it was found... From like reenactments and and things I was able to find, one of the reasons could have been he just wanted it a very soft light so that everyone didn't wake up from the light. And then also where it was placed, I believe, was strategic. From what I understand, it was at the top of the stairs, kind of in the cornerish area. So that I wonder if he just sat it there and that was enough light to move about that area. Yeah, and I think from looking at that room, that would make sense. But another kerosene lamp was found the same way in the room that where the Stillinger girls were.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Also in that room, they found a piece of a keychain. So the way that they were both sleeping in the same bed, although there were two made up, some have postulated that maybe that meant that they were expecting another guest. I almost wonder if, as we had said, it's possible that people actually did wake up. Maybe they weren't originally in the same bed. Oh, that's a good thought. The way they were positioned was that the younger child, Ina, was closer to the wall and she was facing the wall. And Lena was behind her. Her face was covered with a gray coat. So for Lena, it looked like she had been struck once and then tried to scoot down the bed and then she was struck again. They also found blood on the right inside part of her knee and her nightgown had been pushed up i also saw i saw conflicting reports on whether sexual assault was alleged i think at the time sexual assault wasn't alleged but when you look at it with today's lens it seems more like it and also i saw some accounts where they say that lena looked like she had been positioned how she was laying and others that say like that's just how she was positioned when she died she also had a defensive wound on her arm that means she woke up yeah. When something like that happens, I guess it's like without even thinking your arm goes huh. up. Like a reflex? Yeah. Like it's a, an instant reflex that happens where you like try to throw your arm up. And it's happened in many cases before too. And they said that looking at it today, that it might've just been that's when something tragic or crazy happens like that. Huh. Your arm goes up. I don't know if that's true, but I did read it a couple places. I do believe something weird happened with that because she was wearing no underwear. And it appeared that her underwear had been used to wipe the axe and then were tossed under the bed. One of the most disturbing parts of this was a two-pound slab of bacon wrapped in a dish towel that was found next to the axe. Much to my surprise, there's a general consensus among sources that the bacon was used as a masturbatory aid. The people entering the room looking at this horrific nightmare and then just seeing the slab of bacon, you know, in that room. And the axe was left in that room, by the way, as well. Yeah. So the axe is there, slab of bacon. I think it was wrapped in like a dish towel. And yeah. one of the accounts, I think it was in the documentary for this tragedy, they said it like they rolled it up and used it in that fashion and that they left another two pound slab in the icebox. And then the fact that that was next to the keychain, which I don't know how they know it did not belong to the Moors, this keychain piece, but it is said several different places that it was not owned by the Moors and it was near this bacon. So I don't know if that keychain, you know, was like in his pocket or it broke while he was doing stuff with the bacon. I don't know. It's horrible and disgusting, but there's this keychain and I feel like that is like the only thing that was left, right? That so, some of the investigation notes that I had jotted down that I thought was interesting was um, the first one I think I, I mentioned slightly is Coroner Lindquist. He is the one that identified the blood splatters and said that it was probably a left handed murder. He also revealed that he noticed a depression in the hay bales. So outside in the family barn and that if someone were to sit there or lay there, there was a knot hole in the wood where they could have seen into the home or, you know, watched the home from there. So we're not sure if he waited outside in this area or if maybe that was just kind of somewhere that the kids played. Yeah. Or maybe that's just where Sarah took a moment. You know what I mean? Maybe she just needed a minute. She had four kids. There's two more there that night. That was her. Yeah. So yeah, we're not sure. Where the killer was, where they hung out. But then also I've seen reports that in the attic there were cigarettes left behind. That maybe the killer waited in the attic until everyone was asleep. And then that would also eliminate walking up and down, the at least up the stairs, where the parents probably would have woken up. Because, like I said, it's like a a loft room in a sense. One very tragic detail, and I think this is probably one of the ones that stuck with me, is how the Stillinger mother found out about her two daughters being murdered. So Lindsay had mentioned that they were a farm family, and they expected the girls to come home early in the morning. So she tried calling the house early in the morning. And from what I understand, no one answered. And this was probably before everything was found. And then she tried to phone again later that morning. And when she called, and this is a time where there were phone operators, so you had to say, you know, who are you trying to contact? And she said the more residents, and the phone operator already knew of the murders and actually said, well, I'm sorry, I can't connect you. Everyone was murdered last night. And then that's how she found out her daughters were murdered because she said, oh, well, my daughters were staying there. And I think, from what I understand, the belief is the phone operator said, I'm so sorry. Everyone in that home was killed last night. It's hard to find the right words to say how heartbreaking that would be. I can't even imagine. And then for that time where murders didn't happen, you know, in this, it wasn't a thing. And just finding out in that way. Yeah. That poor, poor woman. And also, they originally didn't realize that it was the Stillinger girls in that downstairs room. They thought that it was one of Sarah's sisters and one of her children, correct? I believe that they at first and then there was a couple different reasons they knew it was the Stillinger's. One being I believe they had their Bible and they had their names in the front of it because they had just left the Children's Day thing. Now, kind of another tragic detail of this with the Stillinger girls is they were originally not supposed to be there that night. They were supposed to go after church to stay at their grandmother's house. They were scared. So they asked if they could stay the night. And then the Moore family phoned their family and, you know, was going to ask the parents' permission. But the parents were busy and their older sister Blanche answered the phone and agreed that it would be okay for them to stay the night. I'm sure that's weighed on her her entire life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Blanche's daughter was interviewed in the documentary and she recalls a time in I want to say it was like third or fourth grade that she asked her mother to stay at a friend's house and her mother immediately replied with no and that her father had to talk to her mother and basically finally they allowed her to stay the night but she had strict rules and she had to call home first thing in the morning. And it's just imagine that girl's life being changed forever because of something that everyone's done. Oh, sure. You could stay the night somewhere. That's fine. You know, the older sister thing. So it just it made me feel so sad for her. Just almost taking some of that responsibility, even though, you know, she did nothing wrong. But instead of going, no, you should go to grandma's house. She said, no, that should be fine. Word spreads around the town. And I wouldn't think through it from what I saw almost 100 people walked through the crime scene area and that so many people came to Vallisca that the Vallisca National Guard had to secure the area because from what it sounded like, it seemed like the population of the city almost doubled and that people were just like walking through the house, hanging out. And from, from one account, I saw that a part of the father's skull had been taken by Somebody in the town. I think, I believe his name was Bert McCall. Yeah, yeah. A very weird and apple trinket to take from. A when tragedy. I first read that, I was like, "That's a what a souvenir!" But then I saw later that he was implicated with one of the suspects, and that it was alleged that he had taken the skull as proof that the family had been murdered. Okay. Yeah, and Maybe. I was like, "Woof!" I was like, "I feel like you don't really need that." With the crowd gathered outside the home, Dr. Williams actually cautioned the crowd not to go in the house. And he was noted to say, don't go in there, boys. You'll regret it until the last day of your life. And then no one seemed to listen. So they estimate around 100 people gallivanted around this house, destroying any hopes of evidence. So at this time, fingerprinting, from what I understand, was a new thing. And they did call out someone to help like fingerprint this house. But if there was a fingerprint left behind, it was destroyed by all these crazy people. During the documentary that we watched, one of the things that the narrator talks about is how everyone was trying to share theories about this. And they're literally hanging out at their house. There's so many people on their porch that people are falling off. If you're just trying to get an image of it. At one point, they show a picture. It's two women. So the narrator says, like, people are sharing stories. And these women are full on about to kiss. And you cannot convince me otherwise. Do you want to put that on our Instagram? I think, I think we should. <laughs> I think so. It was probably the only light of this terrible thing. It's just like watching some of the images that were sketched about this whole mess. Yes. Because they are just... There's something. Yeah. One of the things that I found very fascinating was that this was a small town. So, did they have a police force that was equipped to handle this? No. So, when the sheriff arrived on the scene, he deputized some men to help clear people out of the house. What we know now about murderers is that sometimes they hang around in the crowd. And that the murderer isn't always the boogeyman or somebody who looks or acts different than the guy next door. So it's very possible that one of the people that was deputized to get people out was the murderer. Yeah, it it definitely could have been. And just understanding that, like you mentioned, their town was not equipped for this. There was basically no crime, no murders, no nothing that happened in this town. And it was a fairly busy town because it was attached to the railroad, right? So there would be a lot of transients, a lot of different people that would visit their town because the trains came so frequently throughout the day. When you had mentioned that, yeah, they weren't equipped, some of the people that were coming to help collect evidence to review things, they had to come from a town over or a couple towns over. So that's why it wasn't just immediately first thing in the morning, everyone was able to walk through and look for clues. It was throughout the day. They were waiting for people to come and help. And when they were waiting, that's when all the people had entered the home and kind of ruined it. Yeah. It's interesting to note how the town changed as a result of the murders. So at this point, I'm thinking like early 1900s. Did people always lock their doors? Seems like they didn't because after this, the hardware store, they ran out of locks because people were buying them up. There was also at least one account of where families would hire someone to come sit in the first bedroom of their house. And so how it would work, the family would all sleep in one bedroom that was further away from the front door the door locked. Then someone else who they hired would sit in the first bedroom with the door unlocked. I want to think they had a weapon of some sort to defend themselves if needed, but the idea was that they were paid bait so that if the murderer came, they would get to that person before the family. Mm -hmm. weird thing though something we should mention is when you said the locks right that that they didn't always have locks or they weren't always locked the more residents did have locks they don't know if they were unlocked when the killer entered but the killer did lock the door behind him and take one of the keys so that might have been like a weird thing if they could have found where the key ended it doesn't sound like they ever locked the house after ross originally opened the door but if they had locked it then the killer could have gone back easily and opened it up So quickly news spread about the murders because this was pretty sensational. And the fact that it happened in a small town even made it even more so. So it became common knowledge around the town and everyone was hungry for someone to blame. There was this idea that they would find... Some person who they could visibly see had mental illness, who would be covered in blood. And they really thought that he was going to be hiding in someone's barn for some reason. I think it's just the narrative that they told themselves because the realistic idea that this could be their neighbor is a lot scarier, frankly. So they sent out groups of people. Sometimes it was 100 or more people who would go out With weapons, anytime they heard a lead, and these people would basically go to try to find that person, I didn't see that there ever were any leads. No. Well, all they knew is they had brought in some bloodhounds, and the bloodhounds, you know, tracked the scent to a point, but it was just to the river. So they weren't sure if it was, like, a transient who, like, bathed in the river, got all the stuff off, or... Some of the suspects we'll talk about, but that was really all they had to go off of is kind of the route that they took. And it looks like from what I remember is the bloodhounds went around their house, avoided the town square, stopped at the Jones property for a moment. We'll talk about him in in a few minutes. Stopped there for just a second. Didn't actually like go up to the house by any means and then continued down to the river. When the bloodhounds first arrived at the Moore residence, there were over fifteen hundred people congregated outside. And so, what they did was they used the axe handle and a piece of cloth that was used by the killer to wipe blood from the blade. Which that makes me think that it was Lena's undergarments, then, um, and that's what they use for the scent for the bloodhounds. Yeah, and because of that, that where their town was located, they didn't, they couldn't understand if it was a resident. Or someone who simply could have just gotten off the train, committed something horrible, and then left. And so they were pretty desperate to find out who committed the murders, understandably so. And so I did generally like the documentary. I will say that the way that they talk about race is a bit cavalier. They talk about that before the murders, there had been a few African-American families who lived within the town, but that they were forced to leave. They also then prohibit anyone who is an African-American American to stay to live in the town going forward or to be there after sundown and I had never heard of a sundown town before I had watched Lovecraft Country and it's pretty horrific from what I understand about Lovecraft Country it's a fictional account but they weave in historical racist injustices like sundown towns so looking at James Lowen's website, he describes sundown towns as, and I'm going to quote him, it's an entire community or even county that for decades was all white on purpose. All white is in quotes because some towns allow one black family to remain, then drove out the rest. Institutionalized persons, live-in servants, black or interracial children didn't vol- violate the taboo. And then so he talks about when they say on purpose, it's not always a formal ordinance, but if a black family tried to move in or tried to enter the town after sundown, they would be in with what he describes as considerable hostility, and so when they talk about it in the documentary, the woman who speaks about it says it with a giggle. And when Amanda and I were watching it, we just like paused for a moment, like what an what an interesting thing to find funny. I think we had to pause the actual documentary because it like blew us away just how callous. And you would hope that a lot of them had grown from that, but when they made the documentary, some of the townspeople were still yes. alive. And remembered these days after, you know, following the murder and just the way they described it made us stop and go, oh, my gosh, you know, like it just makes everything more real. What's going on today, too. It's still there. It's still happening. And it's horrible. Yes. And so one of the other things to note was that in the documentary, they talked about the fact that basically anybody who wasn't white was questioned. Like if you were not white, you were a suspect, which is so incredibly disgusting to me. The aftermath of the tragedy affected this entire town, and it seems like towns surrounding it as well. Yeah. What it also did, on top of just instilling fear in all the townspeople, is it made everyone very. Um, all of all of them were pointing fingers at people. So we'll we'll go through the suspects, but knowing who the suspects are, it divided the town. Some were on one side, some were on the other side, and the townspeople were almost bickering about who who they thought might have done it and they were right and the other people were wrong and if you didn't believe me I'm not shopping at your store my children can't play with your children and we are not going to speak so it just like divided and totally had a big impact on a town and that just you know I I understand it's a small town but even like in today's world I don't see even a small town holding on to it as much as this town did I guess I don't know it's hard to say since we're both from larger areas yeah But it just affected this town till this day. They still bicker about it. They still get visitors about it. And it's kind of like a no-no topic until recently when they opened it as kind of a tourist attraction. And even then, a lot of the townspeople that are there are upset that it even exists as a tourist attraction, which I kind of am too. (laughs) It's, It's not marketed nicely in any way, shape or form. There's times when you're like, you could visit this place and pay your respects to the family and that kind of thing. That's not really how this is marketed. It truly is like there was a gruesome murder here. You can be in the place where this gruesome murder occurred. There's a sign outside. Yes, there is certainly a sign outside. And I just an interesting way of doing it. It really reminds me of don't ask me what season of American Horror Story it is. But there's the character who wants to do she wants to do murder attractions. It reminded me of that. I was like, oh, maybe she went to (laughs) Velisca and she saw it here. Oh my gosh, that was, um the last season camp redwood i just found it interesting that they marketed it you know axe murder house whereas i feel like the the proper or i don't know polite way if you if you had to do this would have been the more family house museum something along those lines that works that's when you look at it now it's just someone who's trying to make money off of tragedy and it's like in your face that they're doing that instead of and, and you know i don't know these people maybe i know that they own a museum there too and And they do have an actual like town's museum that they keep. That's awesome. But just the way that they marketed it, like very much turned me off and made me just a little upset when watching it and watching all, you know, like the ghost hunters and stuff go there. And just the disrespect for it made me a little sad. Yeah. Yeah. And at one point in the ghost hunter episodes, Zach Baggins has what they believe is the murder weapon. And he's in he's in the attic and he is like the murder weapon is kind of like positioned above him. And he's like, if you're in here, you could use your weapon again. And I'm like, "Ew, man. Yeah. No, the whole thing was just disrespectful. And him and all of his like crew holding axes between all like the transitioning pieces of that show irritated me. I just thought it was so. Yeah. It had that same cringe factor. Yeah. Yeah. When I started watching and I, I kind of wanted to turn it off, but it was more like I wanted to see more of that walkthrough of the house and to like get a sense of the house. Um, and, and that was only recently that these people purchased the home. I want to say it was like 1994 that it was purchased and they tore it apart and tried to fashion it as it would have been in 1912. Yeah. And so that that was like, that's awesome. And they're trying to, you know, pull that history factor of it. I get that. But then also they still have the mirrors yeah. covered from what I can understand, like from what I can see online. And yeah, they have this giant sign outside that says Axe Murder House. They do overnight tours or overnight stays, I should say. They do tours daily. And just the way that it's marketed is not my thing. Okay, so as far as suspects goes, the first one was Frank Jones. Now, Frank Jones was pretty well known around the town. He was a local businessman, and he was also the state senator at one point. And he would have been 57 years old when the murders took place. He was never actually formally charged with involvement in the murders, but this was one of the ones that the townspeople were kind of divided because they believe that he might have hired someone to kill Joe, mainly the father. The reasons that... They believed that is because he Joe had worked for him for seven years I want to say and he was like the best salesman so he was like his money maker right and because of a wage disagreement and I believe an hour's disagreement too they always say wage wages but from what I saw he worked sometimes from like 7 a.m to 11 p.m and he worked like six days a week so I can understand yeah why he was over it. Uh but he left in 1907. He stopped working for for Jones and created his own business and he actually took one of the biggest accounts with him, the John Deere company, which we all know that company now. So, yeah, probably a huge comp- or a huge uh loss, but in no way did it, you know, close his business down or anything like that. To keep the case moving along, re- the family really had to push for it to keep going. So Ross Moore had hired a PI named James Newton Wilkerson. And so Wilkerson was the person who originally had thought it was Fred Jones and the person whom he'd hired, Blackie Mansfield. And I was appalled and fascinated at the way in which wilkerson would have these evangelical kind of speeches where he would explain to the townspeople like why he thought every it was them and what had happened and he had even he even raised money to help the defense of another suspect that we'll talk about in a few minutes so it was interesting like he wasn't just like oh i think it's him he was gunning for him like he felt it in his bones in addition to being business rivals, there's a rumor that Fred Jones's son, Albert, his wife, Donna, and Josiah were having an affair. Right. So the, that was a couple of reasons why it was believed, you know, he absolutely hated Joe because of work and possibly the affair, which, sure, you can hate someone. I just, I don't know if I buy murdering an entire family because of it or hiring someone to murder a family. Maybe, the, maybe Joe not saying it's ever okay, but I'm just saying like, is it enough to kill? If it hurt his business that much and he was that angry and horrible, maybe, but I still just don't think that it's worth hiring someone to do something so awful. It's a a really big reaction for a business dispute. You know what I mean? And especially like when you think of 19. 12, I don't know, racist, but also family oriented is how I picture the world. And so the idea that someone would murder an entire family over money in a small town for like a small I think it was a small town hardware store or something like that. It's just it's a it's a hard pill for me to swallow. One of the reasons that Wilkerson really liked Mansfield for the murders was because his own wife, infant child and father-in-law had been murdered also with an axe um, that happened in 1914. But there was also axe murders that were committed in Paola, Kansas that were just a few days before the Velisca murders, and then there were also murders in Aurora, Colorado of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller. And in all of these situations, murdered with axes, mirrors were covered, and a burning lamp was found at the foot of the bed with a chimney removed. Talked about how in the kitchen there was a basin with water in it that looked like maybe he washed his hands with it. So that was found in the kitchens as well. And then I didn't see this commonality listed as part of the Veliska murders until I was reading about it in context of Mansfield, that it looked like the killer wore gloves to avoid leaving fingerprints. And Mansfield's prints were on file at a military prison in Leavenworth. That's a lot of reasons to think that perhaps it was William Blackie Mansfield. But I don't see how, aside from some hearsay gossip kind of, that people had heard them talking in the woods, that, that like really ties them together. It's like a hard jump. Yeah. And ultimately, for at least the Vallisca murders, Mansfield had an alibi at the time Because his payroll records showed that he was working in Illinois during the time of the murders. And the documentary talks about how strange their payroll records were. So who could say if it was, you know, authentic? It was a very weird way that they they paid him um but again i still don't see him or jones having reason enough to kill the family Uh, at least i feel like the motive would have been deeper however i wouldn't put it past him as far as like you said you know was money worth it but money does cause a lot of horrible things to happen right so i wonder you know how i said earlier that i i feel like it would have been hard for one person to do everything. I wonder if he maybe helped orchestrate something or might have been involved in one way or another, but I don't believe that him or Mansfield actually did the killing. Oh yeah, I agree with you. Another suspect was Henry Lee Miller. He was convicted of the murder of his mother and maternal grandmother. Their slaying was just a few months after the murders in Villisca in Columbia, Missouri. They also were killed brutally with an ax. Mm Mm-hmm. And they say his motive might have been to obtain the deed to the house or something crazy, just something that made no sense. Yeah. So in the investigation for the case, they brought in a person who was part of a very new and exciting realm of forensics, M.W. McClary. Mm -hmm. He was a fingerprints expert. When he showed up to the town, he was drunk. So he was starting off professionally. Yeah, I heard he wanted to go to the house. He was like, yeah, I'm here to do the fingerprints. And they were like, "Mm -mm, mm-mm, you have to get sober first. And he had to sober up before he could actually go and try to do the fingerprinting. That's where they draw the line. You want to have a party and just like take a piece of this man's skull, go for it. But a drunk fingerprint person, we're not having it. Now, McClary's father was a warden at the Kansas State Penitentiary, and he was familiar with an inmate there, Henry Moore. And so he suggested to his son you might want to look into him because there were other murders that were similar enough. So in 1900, he was living with a family in Franklin County, Iowa, and he was working as a farmhand. And so it's thought that he may have had a relationship with the farmer's daughter, gotten her pregnant, and then ran off. Stand-up guy. After he runs off, he's convicted of forgery, and he's remanded to the Kansas State Reformatory. Now he's released in the April of 1911. So... It's alleged that he also had something to do with the murders of H.C. Wayne, his wife and child, and A.G. Burnham and her two children, all of which who were bludgeoned. And that was in Colorado Springs the following September. Additionally, it's also alleged that he killed a family in Monmouth, Illinois, in October of 1911. And From what it seems, Montmoth is very close to Beliska. So, and also around this time, another family of five in Ellsworth, Kansas, were murdered as they slept. But it doesn't seem that he was ever charged. It was just real informal, maybe it's him. But it's crazy that these towns were dealing with the possibility of a serial killer too, which was foreign to them. That wasn't something that happened. And all of these areas were having very, very similar murders take place. and. It could be the same person. And then there's also, wait, it could be this other person. So is it a serial killer? Is it someone that's like, hey, it worked for them? At this time, it also could have been common for the axe to be used in multiple murders because it was a weapon of convenience. It could be found on many farms. Many homes had it. Almost any home with a fireplace had one somewhere. And it was a tool, not necessarily a weapon, that would be left out pretty openly, whether it be in the backyard or a shed or whatever. It was very easily obtainable so it could have just been a weapon of convenience and when someone's sleeping it also might have been a weapon of choice because with an axe you you can't really go after a moving target it has to be someone who's stationary and so the only time to do that would be when someone is sleeping that makes sense so could make it a little more common than this era, too. And then also, I mean, yes, there were guns, but guns are loud. Guns cause attention to be, you know, put in that area. and axe, not so much. Only the house would probably hear it. Neighbors probably wouldn't. The final suspect we'll talk about tonight is Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly. What a name. Lots of names there. He was an English immigrant. And he was a preacher and he had a known sexual deviant history, also noted mental problems as well. A couple things that, that would come up later, too, that just kind of tied him to the case, but also people thought he couldn't be tied to the case because of it, is he was only five two and weighed 119 pounds. So he was very, very tiny. And then he was left-handed. So when the murders took place, he was like a if I understand it correctly, a traveling reverend, and he had come into Veliska that day, and he actually was there and attended the Children's Day church service. And I've seen a couple different notes, but some say too that he sat near Mr. Moore in the back. I can't confirm that. That was just something that I think it was on just some blog sites and things like that. So I don't know if that's true, but maybe that's where he discovered the family. Who could know? So Reverend Kelly... Since he was a traveling reverend, he was doing sermons, I guess, at a couple different places. And the night before the Villisca murders happened, he had stayed in in Macedonia. And the family that he stayed with then, the night prior, actually had a weird experience with him where the mother felt like... She didn't feel like he was a safe person to have in their home. He stayed on the bottom floor. The family was upstairs. And she actually stayed during the night on the staircase to watch her family. And I guess the grandmother of the family also said, do not bring that man here again. He's crazy. So just to kind of say a little bit of, yeah, the tone for him. But anyways, so he stayed with the Ewing family the night of the murders. And from a couple accounts that I've read, he stayed in the house and the Ewing family slept outside in a tent. I haven't been able to find like actual documented reasons, but a couple people said it was due to like either an allergy or asthma or something along those lines where they slept outside that night. I don't I can't confirm one way or another why on on the accounts of of what everyone Before they suspected him, Kelly stayed with them. He left early the next morning on what, like around 5 a.m. on a train. Yeah, so he caught a very early train. Now, a couple reasons why he's looked at as a suspect. Reason number one, while he was on the train, an elderly couple had a conversation with him. And they recall him talking about the murders on that very early train so the weird thing is as he was talking to this elderly couple about the murders the bodies hadn't yet been found by that time and if they were found he was already on the train early enough to where there's no way he could have known about it because there was no cell phones there was no way of him getting the news that they were murdered on that early morning train so that's that's one now later when trials and all that fun stuff would happen the elderly couple didn't remember their stories they didn't follow the same thing, so I can't say they for sure remembered it was that day, but it's what they believed at the time. And then as everything progressed, sounds like they forgot a little bit of the day that it happened. But still, that's very strange. How are you talking about a murder that just took place on that morning train? Another thing is, so in 1914, he also placed a very strange ad in the Omaha World Herald. So when he was living in South Dakota, the ad was for a girl stenographer to do confidential work. And must be willing to pose as a model. So one woman, Jessamine Hodgson, I believe is how you say her name, responded and received a reply that he wanted her to do it in the nude, which was very like odd, you know, for that. So then she showed the reply to her pastor, who then showed the sheriff, who then showed the postal authorities and they decided this is what it's not funny but it kind of is they they sent letters back to him trying to get more information so i could just in my head i just imagine like this group of men writing these weird creepy letters from women to this guy looking for a stenographer to type in the nude to get replies back from him and then his replies became more and more suggestive as They were pen pals with this guy for a while. I don't know. (laughs) It's just what my head goes into. So then he was charged for sending obscene material through the mail. When he was arrested, some say he said, don't take me back to Iowa. Don't like that. Don't like that at all. So once arrested, he was committed to a mental hospital and stayed there nine months. As Amanda mentioned, this case has yet to be solved and... It seemed like the appetite to find the killer didn't die down, which is a good thing. The town really teetered between thinking it was either Mansfield, Jones, or Kelly. Yes. So, and as I have mentioned earlier too, so folks would donate money to either side to help with legal funds. So there were people who thought that it was Jones and Mansfield. So they would donate to what would eventually be Kelly's defense fund when he's tried for the murder and vice versa, I believe. Kelly is brought back as a suspect after Mansfield isn't convicted. One of the grand jury members, Scott Smith, after the Wilkerson case against Mansfield and Jones collapsed, he said, quote, we've got to look at the crazy preacher over in Nebraska talking about Reverend Kelly. In April of 1917, they start really looking at Kelly. And after, like, the issue with the newspaper the elderly couple saying what they heard and and other rumors circulating, he was finally looked at again as a pretty prime suspect. Yeah, and one of the other things that they noted was that he had taken a bloody shirt to be cleaned very soon after the murders. But when they talked to the launderer, At the time, they said that it's actually, it wasn't completely uncommon for people to get blood in their shirts because they were shaving with safety razors. So you could cut yourself. Also, people, it wasn't as though you wore dress shirts just to fancy occasions. It was what you wore every day. So if in the, like, you know, encountering the world, you fell, tripped, picked up something, they said it was a red stain, not that it was blood, and they never tested it. So they couldn't prove it was blood. Right. Well, they didn't have tests to even prove that back then yeah yeah very true so reverend kelly confesses and so of everything here nope nope the bacon gets me more but this is what gets me second so i'm gonna read his confession because there's just no way to sum it up per reverend kelly
1: i was working on a sermon the text of which was slay utterly i had heard gypsy smith preach on that topic i got dressed and went out on the balcony I heard a sound like a windmill. I went back to bed again, but couldn't sleep. Then I got up and dressed for a walk, still studying my sermon. At 2.45 o'clock, I went to the Presbyterian church. While alone in the church, I heard a voice. It said, go further. I went out and walked to the end of the street, where I saw a shadow which beckoned me to follow. The shadow led me to the rear of the Moore house. I saw an axe on the rubbish heap. I picked the axe up by the handle. The voice again spoke, saying, go on. Follow the shadow, Slay Utterly. The shadow led me to the door of the moor-home. Inside, the voice said, Go up. I obeyed the voice. I thought I was climbing Jacob's ladder. I went into a room where four little children were sleeping. The voice of God said, Slay Utterly, suffer the little children to come unto me. I answered the voice of God and said, Yes, Lord, they're coming now. I took a hold of the axe handle and killed the children. I am sure I killed the children first. Children had bothered me all my life. I think I had put the sheet over them afterwards. The voice of God then said, More work yet. There must be sacrifices of blood. I followed the shadow into a room where Mr. and Mrs. Moore were sleeping. I worked as fast as I could. I think I killed the mother first. I felt tired. I went downstairs and thought I would find a place to lie down. I saw two girls sleeping in a room. God's voice said, More work still. The words Slay Utterly were still ringing in my ears. I killed them. I think I put the sheet over them, but I don't just remember. The text Slay Utterly had been in my mind before the murders, and I have had a hard time resisting the impulse to Slay. My soul is relieved now for the first time in five years.
0: Woo. Yeah, that's a hard read. And- just knowing that I I know it sounds like, hey, this is the killer. He confessed and it's all over and done with. But after I believe two juries looked at this case, he was never convicted for the murders. There was a time before police were tight lipped about details of crimes. And this was that time. So everyone knew what happened. Everyone knew that the entire family was killed. They knew who was where in the house. They knew that the bedcloths had been pulled up over their heads. So these were details that he could have known just from existing in that time period in that area. Yeah. Well, something, though, and again, yeah, he even though he said all of this later on, you know, he he's not convicted for the murders. I have a couple issues with his confession. And it sounds like, you know, this wasn't until 1917, I believe, that this Confession was given and it happened in 1912. So, five years is a long time. And on two sides of it, I feel like if he was a murderer and he was told to slay utterly and he remembers all of that, how does he not remember every detail about the sheets and all of that? Also, how does he kill the children first? You know, he enters the home, walks up these creaky stairs, walks past the sleeping parents into the other room because you had to pass the parents. And how do they not wake up while their kids are getting murdered next door, right? And then also the shadow. Could it have been maybe just speculation, not written down anywhere that I can find? Could it have been Jones as the shadow? Like, I don't see, I mean, he's saying God is speaking to him to kill. Sure, he's, he's whatever. But also, could it have been someone like beckoning him or asking him to do this terrible thing too? Just kind of a what if scenario. It could be. They, there were witnesses that said that they saw Albert go into the house earlier that night before the family had gotten home from Children's Day. And Albert is Jones's son, just to recap. Yeah. So, I mean, it's possible that he was there coaxing him along. I don't find that too probable, though, because it's kind of like a rando guy. He'd have to know that this guy was peculiar. That's true. Well, like you were saying, some people saw things happen throughout that day. One woman, Alice Willard, testified that she saw three strange men pass the Moore House twice that Saturday before the murders, and one was Mansfield. Hmm. She also had stated, too, that later that night, um, I believe that Saturday before the murders, she was driving with a traveling salesman from Chicago and another woman and their car broke down. They began walking back to the town and then she noticed three men behind the house I guess there was like a vacant lot in the area. And she seemed, she's like, I was afraid. And so her and the friends kind of hid behind some bushes and she noticed that the men stopped. Mm-hmm. Then... One being Bert McCall, who was a pool hall operator, and Jones joined them. And then And to recap, Bert McCall was the person who stole the piece of skull. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't even put that name together. And so she says Jones and McCall were together, and then she she doesn't remember, or maybe it's just not written down, I'm not sure. But she says she heard them talking and someone says, Get Joe first, and the rest will be easy. Okay, I I believe that her testimony though. For whatever reason, maybe her story changed or something, but it never, nothing came of it from what I understand. The day before the murders on June 9th, Josiah and Sarah's niece, Faye Van Gilder, who was 16 at the time, was quote unquote accosted by a stranger who had wanted to know where the Moore family lived. Right? Isn't that very specific? Ooh. And from every description I've seen, people who lived in the town knew where people lived. Yeah. Well, it was a small town. Yeah. And they all knew each other. Yeah. So it would be strange that, one, it would be somebody who this girl didn't recognize. And two, that if it was somebody who already knew the Moore family, that they wouldn't know where they lived. All very weird things. Very weird. Yeah. That also shows just how complicated and just how we don't know enough about the case to be able to say, like, yep, this is the person. Because there's so many strange happenings that happened up until this time and people and it could be, you know, they just want justice. So they're thinking, oh, did I hear them say that? Did did I see these people? I believe I saw these people. And who knows if that put the images in their head that certain people were there or maybe it was for a letter that they had to deliver or something like it could have just been something as uh, as innocent as, you know, like maybe there's a reason that that person was asking, you know, and just now it's like, yeah, they asked for their address. They might be part of it. Who who could know? Yeah. Um. Well, after all of this, like we said, it, it's still a cold case. No one knows who did it. People still pick this up and try to thumb through all the details and all the, the notes from the, the hearings and the juries and all of that stuff. And they're still not able to say for sure this person did it. I guess the house was finally sold again in 1936, and it was occupied by a couple different families. There's one woman who was interviewed for the documentary that said her and her sister shared the south bedroom, and that ab- above her mattress on the wallpaper, there was brownish streaks, and she believes that they were blood streaks and splashes from blood stains. You got to clean that up. Well, I think sometimes, though, when it sits for too long, it's like they need they need to replace all of it, repaint wallpaper, whatever. I don't just tear the wallpaper down. It can not be worse. And if you look at the pictures of the house now, the wallpaper is down. It's not there anymore. It's just like clearly there was something there. Like you can see the glue marks kind of for where the wallpaper was. Yeah. Well, again, then in 1993. So think of how long this house had been. I don't know if it. It went into different people's hands between this or not. But in 1993, new owners, Darwin Lynn and his wife, purchased the home. He was the owner of the Olson Lynn Museum, also in town, and... It sounds like he just wanted to make it an attraction, which I feel like is very disrespectful the way that it's marketed. I I know i said that before, but a lot of the townspeople were always worried, I guess, that someone was going to try to sensationalize the home, and then it finally did happen. Um, the one good thing that he did that I felt like just makes makes it interesting is how he did tear some of it down and try to make it into what the house was in 1912. From what I read on some accounts, they had like, closed off one of the entryways or uh the porches and he like took all that down and redid it it's still talked about today the town still gets people going into it asking about the murders from what i understand ross so the brother always believed that it was jones who hired the murderer to kill his brother and his family And even all of the families involved throughout their generations, they still have certain things that they held on to because of these murders. The sister of the two Stillinger girls that were murdered, she had a daughter and, you know, was very worried about her staying the night somewhere. Ross's grandson was taught to always check closets and showers and things like that. When he stays somewhere new, he, he travels for work. And he recalled, I always check the, the showers, I check the closets, and even sometimes under the bed. And then in and, and one last thing, another connected family member. So Albert Jones, Frank's son, he died in 1935 of heart failure. And there's a rumor that went around saying that when he died, no one would let people around him because he might confess something. That was in the documentary too. It's just when he died and and I think it was a woman saying there's rumors that circulated that no one was allowed to go in there because he might confess something. So honestly, who who knows? I have a lot of different things and, and it's, you can't really check, you know, like there's nothing to go off of that can say, okay, this fingerprint or this evidence was found because the house, you know, all the people had entered it, but I really do think that there was like a couple different people involved in the murder or maybe it just is what my brain wants to believe to make it make a little more sense but who do you think what what are your thoughts on on who did it and why maybe so just kind of starting in chronological order, I think that the killer was waiting in the attic. I think that they had been smoking cigarettes waiting for them to come home. Interesting. Which means that they weren't at the Children's Day festivities. So I don't think it was Kelly. I think they had been there for a while because from what it sounded like, the whole town had went to Children's Day. So if someone had been milling about the street, I think people would have known. Like Albert. I think it was Albert. I think it was... Jones's son. I think that's one of the reasons why because when you mix, okay, so let's mix not yes. just money, but legacy. Cuz legacy is real different than money. So Albert's father, Frank Jones, not just a business owner, but a politician. And so when Josiah kind of countered him in the business side, like it wasn't just Frank's business, it was Albert's legacy, right? So I could see like you've shamed my father. Yeah right a little bit you've taken something from me and my family and then also with Josiah having an affair allegedly with Albert's wife that seems like the rage that's the rage for me that gets you to that point that's true well and one account that i had read is albert was always trying to get his his dad's approval yeah that totally does make sense i just maybe it's just because i don't have that that place in my brain that goes anything is worth killing a child, let alone that many children at once. I don't know. But that that does totally make sense. Yeah, his wife cheated on him. And everyone knew about it, how much his wife cheated too. Yeah, and a lot of people still think Kelly. But also one thing we didn't mention is it sounded like his confession was almost... Not beat out of him, but, like, coerced. So something, too, that they did to Kelly to get a confession is after he was arrested in August, they had threatened him. And then they put him in a cell with two, like, planted people. So it was a a reporter, I believe, and then a deputy. And he believed that they were thieves, And he had like a rotation of being pressured by these guys and then going back to a cell with his, quote unquote, like cellmates that weren't actually cellmates, you know, like they were planted back and forth, back and forth. And then he finally gave a confession at like 5 or 6 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see how that would be an effective interrogation technique if you wanted the truth. But how did he know the details with the elderly couple? Was the phrase, I thought it was that he said something to the nature of something terrible happened in Villisca. And if it's something as vague as that, he could have meant a great many things. Also, his wife, during his trial, I saw, I think it's in the documentary, but I saw it somewhere else as well. That she sat there, which is kind of a half smile. The entire case. So they're like, and then he sent lewd, lewd letters to a teenage girl. And she's just Yeah, half-smirk. it was a nightmare. And, and combing through, I'm sure, I mean, I, I've read... I haven't actually seen all of the court documents. I can't find them all in one pretty place. But some people have gone through word for word every single thing that was given during these trials. And they are, yep, it was Kelly. And then there still are others that are like, nope, nope, he he was coerced into that confession. He did have some issues, but not enough. So we'll never know, unfortunately. But it is, it is one where it does suck you in as cheesy as that sounds and so many people have said that on what documentaries and I think the ghost hunter shows too. the neighbor or something said like yeah I I read through it and then I'm like I need to solve it and when you do deep dive into this you're like I kind of want to go through every single court doc and I want to go through every single thing that was recorded and see what happened and and try to solve this mystery but it, it very much does call to you Yeah, it's got a little bit of everything that's interesting. In a cold case, it's unsolved. But there are also a lot of suspects that make sense. And I think it's alarming how many people could be axe murderers. Well, and I wonder if they ever searched something that just came to my head. I wonder if they ever searched for the key because the door had to be locked with a key, I believe, right? Yeah. At least that's what I've read, yeah. I would imagine that would have been an easy thing to search, but I think that, like, people could have had spares. You know what I mean? Like, I think that owning a key... Now, okay, if it was, like, Kelly and he had a key to their house, weird. (laughs) Well, I don't know how it locked. I just, I read that it was locked and the key was not there. So I I, that's just my assumption, I guess. But creepy story. We'd love if you would share your theories of what you think happened. We hope you creeped you out. This is the Velisca Axe Murders. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps.